you take your Bibles and open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 6, this evening we'll study verses 1 through 18. First Samuel chapter 6, we'll study together verses 1 through 18. This is God's word. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering, then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened theirs? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart, and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the car and shut up their calves at home and they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw the ark. They rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which the golden figures, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. 
These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all of the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled cities. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Thus far the word of the Lord our God. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to have understanding. Oh, Lord, that we would receive your word with gladness, that, Lord, it would penetrate us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, that you would teach us lessons, oh, Lord, for our own lives, even from the ancient testimony of your faithfulness. We pray this all in Jesus' holy name. Amen. What we do in the face of crisis reveals our theology. If our God is big, if he's powerful and sovereign, then we become small and weak and submissive because we hope that he will act for us and in us and on our behalf. But if our God is small, we become frustrated, sometimes dismissive and innovative so that we can make change for ourselves. Our crises reveal what we truly believe. And here again, as we come to the testimony of the Philistines and their interaction with the Ark of the Lord, we see them show their theology, their view of who God is, and it is in the face of disease and of pestilence. And it's my hope that their example will stir us to consider the holy God of heaven as well. First thing I want us to see in verses 1 through 4 is the indisposable God. The indisposable God. In verses 5 and 6, the need for a soft heart. The need for a soft heart. And in verses 7 through 18, the speculative mind. The speculative mind, or to put it in another term, the doubting mind. The speculative or doubting mind. As we come to this, again, this has context, and the context is a battle that was waged between the Israelites and the Philistines, the battle of Aphek, sometimes called the battle of Ebenezer, both of these small towns accounting for in Aphek, where the Philistines camped, or Ebenezer, where the Israelites camped. But in any case, there was a battle, and there was the loss of many of the people of Israel. And in a hope to amend or make good for the loss, the people of Israel said simply, well, we'll just take the ark down. We'll take this symbol of the presence of God and We'll bring it into battle with us and maybe this will frighten the Philistines, which it did. Or maybe the Lord will bless it or use it powerfully. After all, this thing's dangerous. If we lay a hand on it, people have died. And it's a significant thing, but nonetheless, you know the account. They brought the ark from Shiloh. They brought it into battle. The Israelites, trying to press God into the service of their own deeds and their own desires, lost the battle. 
They lost many men, and they lost the ark of God. The Philistines took the ark, and we're told by Scripture that they brought it to the city of Ashdod. And that specifically they brought it into the house, or the temple, of the false god Dagon. And then we have this really wonderful uh, account of this battle between the true God and false gods. And the first night that the ark of God is in the temple, it's set up next to this statue of the false god Dagon. And, And what happens in the next morning whenever the people come? They come and Dagon has fallen from his stand onto the floor and is laying face down in front of the ark of God kind of in the position or the posture of worship. The people, they, in a moment, say, oh no, what has happened? They pick Dagon up and they put him back in his place because he, like Humpty Dumpty, has fallen off the wall and cannot get back into his place again. And you recall that the next day, another thing happened. The ark is there, Dagon has been replaced, but where do they find Dagon on the second morning? Well, they find him on the floor once again before the ark, but he's in pieces. His head's been cut. His hands and his feet have been cut. And there's nothing but the trunk of Dagon left to him that's laying in front of the ark. And the head and the feet and the hands are where? Well, they're there in the doorway, ready to greet anybody who will come to see the might of the Lord, our God, the God of Israel. Not only did we read that in chapter 5, but we read that even more that the people began to be judged and punished and that the Lord caused tumors to afflict the people of the Philistines. And you may recall that those tumors broke out on the people in such a great effect that they took the ark and they went from one city from Ashdod to another to another to another to the point where eventually it came to the people of Ekron. And the people cried out, what are you doing? You're bringing the ark of the God of Israel here so that we may perish? And so they found themselves into a horrible circumstance. Now, at the close of chapter 5, we've got the circumstance of the people of Ekron crying out as they saw the ark coming. And you may recall that the masters or the lords or the rulers of the Philistines, however you want to call them, uh, they gather together and they caution the people. We need to send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. And we're told that there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city of Ekron. Now that's the instruction. It doesn't seem, at least from chapter 5, that the ark had been any great length of time among the Philistines. And then as we transition to chapter 6, the first thing that we're told is that the ark of the Lord, by the time we come to chapter 6, has been with the Philistines for seven months. Seven months of tumors, seven months of the pestilence of mice, seven months of the fear and the knowledge of what happened in the house of Dagon, with this deathly panic gripping the Philistines. And it seems to me that 
the Philistines were learning an important thing about the true God of heaven. And that is he is indisposable. That he's not like Dagon. In fact, the ark itself is not an idol, a depiction of the God of heaven, but rather it only serves as what the Bible calls it to be, the mercy seat or the lid. It's it's a symbol of the presence of God in the midst of his people. That he's made a covenant to be their God and for them to be his people and that he is pleased to be in their midst. It's like a throne, as it were. A throne fit for the God who is spirit. It's not a thing that you bow down and worship. No, you worship the invisible God who has no face nor has any hands or feet. And a God who forbids graven images. It's entirely different. It is a symbol, rather, of a God who cannot be controlled, who cannot be made use of, and who cannot be simply put away or run from. And again, I just want to simply say that the issue is that the Philistines think that the God of Israel is just like any God. That he's like Dagon. If he falls to the ground, you can just take him and pick him up and put him right back where he belongs. Put him on his pedestal made of stone and wood. Close the door behind you as you leave Dagon where he belongs in his house. Well, the Philistines are learning that the God of Israel is the God of all the earth. He's the God of the heavens and the earth. When we read the Bible, the Bible tells us that the God of Israel, that the God of the Bible, that the God of all creation has this title. He is the God of heaven. It's one of my favorite titles for our God. It's one of the the most comforting titles, I think, for the Christian, especially a Christian that's living somewhere, not their home. And it really means this, that our God is the God of every single place that the heavens touch, that the sky reigns over. He's not a landlocked God. He's not like Dagon of the Philistines or the Baals of the Babylonians or anything like that. He is the God of all the earth. He's not a God whose ark that can simply be moved city to city and can be escaped. He's not a God who can be put in place or locked behind a door or even sent back to his own home and then just be done with. That's not at all it. And so we see the Philistines learning this lesson and as we go on in the first few verses, uh, we read uh, that they call together the priest and the diviners, these pagan clergy from amongst the Philistines. And they realize that this is a God that we can't get rid of. We, we can't just cast him off. We can't bury him underground. We can't go to the top of mountains and get away from him. We can't take him and hide him in other cities. What do we do? What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us what, to, what, we, shall send, uh, what we shall send with it to its place. And you see that these pagan priests and diviners or prophets or however they were that they have some understanding at least of the basic aspect of the character of our God and this is what they respond they said if you send away the ark of the God of Israel verse 3 do not send it empty but by all means return him a guilt offering 
Return him a guilt offering. What's the lesson that they've learned? It's this. Our God must be reckoned with. He's not a God of convenience. He's not a God that we can take up and put down. He's not a God of options. Just one in a great pantheon of many gods. He is a God with whom once we encounter him, we must deal with him. And that he is a God who delights in justice. That's why they tell them, you need to send with the ark as you return it a guilt offering. Because even if you send the ark and it goes back to Israel, this seems to be a God who can extend his hand into where? Well, into the midst of the Egyptians. Certainly into Israel, but even into all of the cities of the lords of the Philistines, into the land even of giant men, men from Gath, who will be an opponent of the people of God. You have to deal with this God. He is powerful. And not only that you have to deal with God in general, you have to deal with God regarding the offenses of your own heart against Him. Now we see what they design. Five golden tumors and five golden mice. That's a guilt offering. This is pagan instruction. This is according to the wisdom as best as can be had from these false priests and false prophets of these false gods. What would we know from the Bible would be a guilt offering? Well, guilt offerings require blood, don't they? The most ideal is a spotless lamb or a strong ram for the provision of God. But nonetheless, these people have realized this is a God who must be dealt with. What a lesson that is for us. Oftentimes we think we can take God up and put him right back down, that we can have our religion in a box, that we can lock him away, that it can be on Sunday, that it can be on Wednesday, that it can be in specific times wherein we have decided we will do religious things, whether it's a quiet time, which is good, which is lauded, whether it's in times of worship, which are good and commanded of God for us to participate in, But at times we forget. He remains God and we remain his people. Monday through Sunday, every moment of every day of the whole of our lives, we are a people living in the sight of the God of heaven before his face. We are a people who have hearts that are viewed by the God of heaven. And who certainly, if the Lord decides and decrees that we should have tragedy in our lives ought to ask the simple question, Oh Lord, are you trying to get my attention? Is it the case that in your sovereignty you are trying to chasten me away from sin? Are you trying to encourage me to have faith in you and you alone and in your strength rather than in the things of this world? What is it, O Lord? And then search out his design. And maybe it is the case that the Lord is trying to get our attention so that we will do business with him regarding the sins of our hearts either unconfessed or undealt with before his face to call us to repentance. He is an indispensable God. Secondly, we see in the passage, I think, the need for a softened heart. 
You go on and you continue to read and we get to verses 5 and 6. And we read this design of these false priests and false diviners. They say, so you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you and your gods and your land. Verse 6. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened theirs? After he dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? It seems like wise counsel. But it also seems to me that it is in the context of seven months of spiritual resistance to the power of God, where they tried to dispose of God and tried to ignore the God of heaven. And the Philistines here, and the wisest amongst them and most spiritual, they put their finger on it. And if it weren't in the word of God, we wouldn't call it reliable after all. False priests and false diviners are not adequate teachers, but in this point they have a sense of things. They're saying, why have you hardened your hearts? Has it done you any good? Is it not just a thing built upon pride? Just move it from city to city and the people suffer. Instead, why don't you do something? Why don't you deal with him in some way? Don't harden your heart. Hear the counsel that we gave you. Return it to their place, but also return it with a guilt offering. You can feel the tension. There's almost a struggle as if the lords of the Philistines are saying, you know, we want to be done with this. We want to deal with this. However, we don't really want to send our war trophy back to those whom we defeated. We also don't want to say that this God who caused our idol to fall and be broken into pieces, that he's greater than our God. Why would we, after all? We're the Philistines. We beat their army. The fact of the matter is, they may have beat the army, but the God of Israel was beating them as an entire nation. And these men are just simply saying, soften your hearts, wake up a little bit. This is a God of power, and he is a God that doesn't delight in the hardness of your hearts and your resistance. You need to have soft and receptive hearts. And even if you're ignorant, still attempt to do something to deal with this God. Now, the thing, I do want to look at this for a second because it deserves our attention. This is one of the strangest, uh, I think, things that I've read in Scripture. Uh, This command of the Philistine uh, priest that they are to make five golden tumors and then five golden mice. But Derek Thomas, whenever he comments on this, he said this is just classic paganism. Uh, That this uh, attempt... Uh, to deal with the problem by uh, making a, a, a little effigy, a little carving out of something precious and giving it as an offering to God with the intent to remind the God or to inform the divinity what it is you need. This is just classic paganism. This is all that they know what to do. They're idolaters and they make idols of the things they worship. They're idolaters and so they even worship by making idols. It's just what they know to do. Now, we can ask the question and pursue it all day long. Did God delight 
and the sacrifice of lumps of gold formed into the shape of tumors. It sounds just horribly grisly. Or these tiny five mice. The Lord relents in some way. The text doesn't tell us he removes anything. However, it tells us that he allows the ark, allows this guilt offering to go and to return to the people of Israel. But nonetheless, what's under the microscope? Well, it's the encouragement to not have a hard heart. How does a person not have a hard heart? Well, it is to see the God of heaven as great and holy and altogether righteous and a God of power, a God who deals with us according to his delights and his designs and a heart that comes in submission to simply do whatever we can, even if we're in ignorance, even if our worship or even if our praise is only in part or or insufficient to nonetheless give him the best of what we know to give. I just want to say that's no excuse for sloppy worship or worship that isn't according to the word of God because we're not like the Philistines. We have the revealed will of God in the scriptures. But nonetheless, our hearts still give to the Lord imperfect worship, worship that can only be made sufficient if taken up by the Holy Spirit and the intercession of Jesus Christ, our mediator. But the soft heart, the pliable heart, not resistant to God, but submissive to him and in search of his will is what is needed. I do want to say that there is an interesting thing here that probably was never said by another Philistine ever, except for in this one occasion. In verse 5, it's not only that they make the images of tumors and of the mice, but they are commanded to give glory to the God of Israel. What does that mean? I think in simplest terms, it means to worship him. In simplest terms, to praise him, to honor him, to, as the text implies, to glorify him, to speak of the things he has done and the greatness that he exhibits in all the earth, to acknowledge him as holy and worthy of praise and awesome. That will only come from a softened heart, broken and brought low. The need for a softened heart. And then in verses 7 through 18, we've had the high point already in the middle of the text regarding the soft heart, but now we see the test that the speculative or the doubting mind sets for God. Verses 7 through 18, we're going to read... Uh, here and there, but really in in verses 7 through 9, we have uh, quite a good bit of it. These false priests and these diviners, they say, not only uh, to make these things, but what then what to do with them. And here's the test. Now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart But take their calves home, away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way on its own to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, 
then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not the hand, his hand that struck us and happened to us by coincidence. Well, we were going on a good path. Glorify the Lord, but still put him to the test. Even the lips of our own Savior, his testimony is against the testing of the Lord. But the speculative mind of these pagan people, just they can't help it. Now think of the proofs. I mean, these are the people that whenever they saw the ark of the Lord come into the camp of the Israelites, they trembled and God has come into camp, right? And they conquered the Israelites, they took the ark. and Again and again, Dagon face down, broken in pieces. Obvious. The symbology, profound. Tumors. Not just any sort of tumors, but as Jerome says, the Lord afflicted them in their posterior. I'll let you unpack that yourself. A horrible thing that came upon not just young men, but also old men and the whole people of the Philistines. They moved from city to city, and it just one city to the next to the next. And then the pestilence of mice. That could mean either that they caused famine in the field or in the storehouses or disease or both. It's horrific. And even these people, they're already making the connection. The God of Israel and the things that he did to Egypt. And now we're experiencing the same thing with this God. Let's still put him to the test. And let's look at the test they set for him. I mean, this is very specific. It's peculiar. Well, we read that they're commanded in verse 7 to prepare a new cart and to take two milk cows. Milk cows are not beasts of burden. They're not at all. In fact, they're, they're beast bound to another beast or even to a master. If you allow a milk cow uh, to go too many days without being milked, it creates major issues for not only the production but the health of the animal. Lots of pain. But if you take a milk cow from its calf and you take them apart... What's going to happen? Well, I'll tell you what's going to happen. I grew up on a cattle farm. That calf is going to howl and moo and groan incessantly. And I'll tell you what a mother milk cow is going to do. She's going to get loud. She's going to get aggressive. And she's going to fight. And if you were to take two mother milk cows and chain them to one another, if even to a cart, and you take those calves and you go hide them away back in a city and they're lowing and mooing and making noise the whole time, that mother's going to have the ears attuned to it, just like I can pick out my kids out of the whole herd of other children here. And that cow's going to do everything in its power and easily break its binding to the cart and the cart itself and anybody that gets in its way to get to that calf. You see, this is an intelligent test that they put before God because they're simply saying nothing short of God and his power could stop that mother milk cow from getting to that calf. We don't just want one, we want two to be double sure. I mean, one, you might have, you might have a strange cow, but two, if they both do it, that's, that's saying something. 
All the other evidence wasn't enough. All the other power of God displayed, it, it, it just wasn't enough. You know, these people still have that tiny atheist in the bottom of their heart that simply says, my rationality ultimately decides what is and what is not. It's by this test that we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. Instead, it could have happened to us by coincidence. Oh, it's bizarre. As you go on in verse 10, they carry it out. Exactly as designed. A foolish test. Silly, even brilliant. Silly. And it's sad. Because this evidences the peculiarity of the heart of man that we can experience so much of the mighty power of God and still be skeptics and fools and deniers and doubters. We can lie about him and to ourselves and insist upon our God, give us more evidence and more evidence and more evidence and more evidence. So what's the enduring legacy of this whole incident? Is it the mass conversion of the Philistines? No, it's not. They praised him for an evening. They tried their best to dispose of him. They sent him away and the Israelites took cows and sacrificed them, took the wood and used it to burn the bodies, and even took the little offerings, the strange and pagan instruction, and burned them as well. May it be that the Lord would give us hearts to learn from this passage, to know him in his power, to not deal with our God lightly, but to see him as he is, not as the God we would constrain him to be, as the mighty God of heaven who created the heavens and the earth, who took us and created us from the dust of the ground, breathing the breath of life into our nostrils. A God who sustained our parents in the garden, who gave them grace after the fall, who sustained all of their progeny, our ancestors, our mothers and fathers, for every season, and who is gracious constantly and gives uh, mercy and rain even on the just and the unjust. May it be that the Lord of heaven would help us to see all of these things and to not have the doubting mind and to not have the hard heart or a desire to leave him behind, but to be a people with soft hearts brought low to worship the God of heaven and to worship him with hearts full of faith. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the mercies that we have readily at your hand. Oh Lord, that you are abundant in your forgiveness. Oh Lord, that you are patient. Oh Lord, even with ignorant pagans that don't know how to deal with you. Oh Lord, that don't evidence a heart that would do right. Oh Lord, and that even at the end of your, your great wrath against them, they still doubt. Oh Lord. But Lord, we could simply say, just as those, such also were we. That, Lord, you had mercy and grace to us. Oh, Lord, even a people who were not your people, who were yet by faith called your people. Oh, Father in heaven, be at work in us. Oh, Lord, make us pliable in your hands. 
We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.